In November 2019, just before COVID changed the world, Madrid played host to the Davis Cup Finals, an event that's generally viewed as the world championship of tennis. In addition to match play, there were associated concerts, opening ceremonies, and even a parade of nations. The elaborate trophy presentation followed the final match between the home team Spain and Canada. In short, for tennis aficionados, the Davis Cup is a big deal. The game becomes a team sport, and the tournament pits country against country for supremacy each year. It's been operated since 1900 and has been won by 16 nations to date. It features national teams from 142 countries that spend a year attempting to qualify as one of the 18 to take part in the finals. It's been staged in 45 cities around the globe. This world event was called something different at the start. The trophy has evolved into its current look, feel, and title, but the tournament began in Boston, and the prize awarded to every winning team since was developed by a venerable Boston jeweler. It may have started here, but it has become a worldwide phenomenon. Its beginnings were humble. It did not even make the front page of the papers back then, but it's a story fitting its times, and it's also history. The Davis Cup Tournament is annual. Well, mostly annual, with a few breaks. It's a team event operated by the ITF, the International Tennis Federation. Each face-off consists of four singles and one doubles match, known as rubbers. Since the start, the final rounds have been played over three days to a week. It's a best-of-five series. The country winning three rubbers moves on to the next round. The championship matchup works the same. The countries are divided into groups based on geography and previous year's performance. Qualifying for the final rounds is relatively complex. The top 18 countries are placed into what is called the world or finals group that face each other in the host city. The number of nations competing in the Davis Cup tournament approaches that of soccer's World Cup or the Olympics. It didn't start that way. Originally, in 1900, it was a challenge between just two nations, the U.S. and Great Britain, and it was initiated by four members of the Harvard tennis team. But it actually has its roots much further in the past. There were international tournaments at least as far back as 1892 when England and Ireland squared off. That event cemented the team format that is still in use today. Meanwhile, the U.S. National Lawn Tennis Association had begun strengthening its ties with its British counterparts. Individuals challenged each other across the Atlantic. James Dwight, first president of the American Association, was itching to play a team from England, mostly to assess the American game in relation to the rest of the world. He was somewhat successful, arranging sanctioned but informal matchups between the two nations, but in none of them were the teams involved considered the best each country had to offer. A well-known American tennis star, William Larned, played at Wilmington. While there, he saw the England-Ireland tournament. He also struck up a friendship with Irish-born Harold Mahoney. 
The two of them worked on officials in Great Britain to get them to agree to come to America. Meanwhile, a tournament was in progress at Niagara-on-the-Lake in Ontario. In attendance was Dwight Davis of Boston. Now remember that name. A magazine published by the Niagara Tournament's organizers talked of a possible matchup between the U.S. and Great Britain. The writer mentioned Davis as a person who might do something for the game, put up a big prize or cup. Meanwhile, Larned continued making plans for an international match, penciling it in for the following summer in Chicago. It was to pit the six best players from England against the six best from America. It was to consist of a mixture of singles and doubles matches, just as the England-Ireland event did. The Chicago Tribune reported on the plans, but for whatever reason, it did not happen. A group from Great Britain did, however, send a team to play in several U.S. tournaments, although they came on their own, not under the auspices of the Lawn Tennis Association of Great Britain. They didn't do so well. The officials from both continents decided that maybe the time wasn't right. That brings us up to 1899. Four members of the Harvard team, which included Dwight Davis, traveled to the West Coast to play the best that California could offer. It was a big success. Davis was impressed by the instant, friendly rivalry that formed. This convinced him if such strong feelings could be generated for a tournament within the country, he felt that a similar event with England would be even more popular. He went to President James Dwight of the Tennis Federation with the idea. He even agreed to personally put up the $1,000 to purchase a sterling punch bowl for the winning team. He went to the jewelry firm of Shreve, Crump & Low, operating in Boston since 1796, and one that had its beginnings across the street from Paul Revere's silver shop. Shreve's, in turn, commissioned a New Hampshire firm, William B. Durgans, to produce a classic design. It was originally called the International Challenge Bowl. Despite the myths surrounding Davis's further involvement in the famed tournament, and indeed ended up with his name adorning the trophy, That, as well as playing on the first U.S. team in 1900, seemed to be the extent of his contributions. The stories around Davis and tennis are similar to those of Abner Doubleday in baseball. He never claimed to be the founder, but he is often considered as such, even today. Davis went on to make his name in politics. He served in the cabinet of President Coolidge, and he was named Governor General of the Philippines. With the trophy in place, the U.S.-Great Britain matchup was announced. On the sports pages of the Boston Globe on August 1st, 1900, it was declared Boston as the first host city, and the matches were scheduled for August 7th, 8th, and 9th at the Longwood Cricket Club. The club was founded in 1877 at the Longwood Estate in Chestnut Hill. It was named for Napoleon's St. Helena home during one of his exiles. The venue had already earned fame. Two stars of Boston's National League Baseball Club, Harry and George Wright, also played for the U.S. National Cricket Team. They were charter members there. George was the brother primarily responsible for introducing tennis to Longwood. He not only played the game, but after his retirement as a professional sportsman, he founded Wright & Ditson, a well-known sports equipment firm. He was a primary source for tennis equipment. When the Lawn Tennis Association was formed at the Lord's Cricket Ground in England, Wright pushed Longwood to build courts in Boston. As one of the earliest clubs to feature tennis, coupled with the prize being donated by Davis, it was the logical choice for the inaugural tournament. 
The contest was to begin on Tuesday, August 7th, but heavy rain caused a one-day delay. It didn't stop the gamesmanship of those involved, however. The Americans seemed intent on tamping down expectations, or maybe they were lulling their opposition from the other side of the Atlantic into a false sense of superiority. Or maybe it was just an inferiority complex. There was a general feeling among the public that the British team was just better. Local officials said that the delay helped the visitors with an additional day of rest after their ocean voyage, followed by a train trip from Niagara Falls. Others said that the damp weather will only help the Englishmen. President Dwight went further. He stated the average English player is 15 times better than the average American player. He did go on to say, however, that the game here has markedly improved of late. Sports writers in general regarded the English chances as high. Days are longer in the British Isles, they said, affording more playing time. The team members were in general older and more mature than the Americans. The U.S. was the decided underdog. The weather on Wednesday was not promising, but it stayed dry enough to get the matches in. Despite the threat of rain and temperatures in the 90s, there was a considerable turnout. Because of the high degree of interest, Longwood had added extra seating. Surprisingly, the British team did not live up to its billing. The U.S. handily won the opening day. These were the singles matches. The first face-off was between the American Davis and Black from England. Black took the first set, winning six games to Davis's four, clearly outplaying his opponent. This is what people expected. He also took game one of the second set and seemed on his way to victory. Davis, however, came back, winning the set 6-2, although it was much closer than the score indicated. Play by both men was applauded. In the third, again, Black from England got the jump on Davis, but he came back, taking the set 6-4. Davis now had the advantage. One more set, and the match went to the Americans. On the adjacent court, the next match, a singles between Whitman and Gore, was started. Back on court one, the fourth set to be proved to be another nail-biter, but Davis prevailed, winning the match and giving the U.S. a 1-0 lead in the best-of-five tourney. Over on court two, the American, Whitman, was taking care of business. He beat Gore in three straight sets by scores of 6-1, 6-2, and 6-2. At the end of the first day, the U.S. team had a commanding lead. In the best-of-five series, the score was 2-0. It just needed one more win to take the very first cup. The stands were filled with both men and women in their gay 90s, finally on a cloudy, hot day. The tournament's name had already begun to evolve. Two days after it began, newspapers were calling the trophy the Davis International Bowl. The tide had turned. The reports now generally favored the stronger Americans, but they gave due credit to their rivals. In proper Victorian language, one article commenting on what turned out to be the winning match said, It is fitting to state that the English pair of Black and Barrett are unquestionably the best that has yet visited this country, and therefore a comparison of the English and American doubles games is made possible by yesterday's contest, especially as it is admitted that the visitors constituted a fair representative team. In previous years, when British players have been defeated here, it has been quite in the cards to make allowance for their ill success upon the ground that such teams have not been representative. This year, no such apology can be made. 
Even the British players admitted to American tennis superiority. During the match, Barrett was heard to say, their game is too hard for us to play against. The Americans won the doubles 6-4, 6-4, and 6-4. Although the fourth and fifth matches were played with America's third win, the first of what is today called the Davis Cup Tournament was essentially over, and the Americans put their stamp on the game. The Globe summed it up by saying, in the history of American lawn tennis, there has never been more remarkable proof of the general excellence and superiority of the American doubles game. There was no tournament in 1901, but it returned in the same format in 1902 with the games played in New York. In 1904, two new countries joined in. Belgium and France entered. Since it was a challenge cup, the countries played for the right to challenge the current cup holder. In 1907, for the first time, the Davis Cup went to a country outside the original two. Australasia, a combined team from Australia and New Zealand, was victorious. Since then, the Davis Cup tournament has grown into a worldwide event, with challenges from about 150 teams from all parts of the globe. Also, the finals have been played in several cities, including London, Sydney, Melbourne, Philadelphia, Paris, Bucharest, Prague, Grenoble, Stuttgart, Lyon, Madrid, and many more. In 1945, upon the death of Dwight Davis, the tournament officially changed its name to what it was already being called in common parlance, the Davis Cup. In 1963, it spawned a second tournament for women, initially called the Federation Cup, shortened in 1995 to the Fed Cup, and more recently to the Billie Jean King Cup. Did the Davis Cup Finals ever return to their birth city of Boston? Well, just once. Although many times preliminary rounds have been played at Longwood, the Finals only came back in 1903. On Tuesday, August 4th, the matches began with rainy weather, but 3,500 brave souls headed to the cricket club to see the British team beat the cup-holding Americans with little effort, 6-0, 6-3, and 6-4. Later in the week, the British squad finished its route of the Americans, four matches to one, taking the championship for the first time. Well, the cup was gone from our shores. The tournament, which began here, was over, and to date has never returned. Disappointed Bostonian sports fans were able to take heart later in 1903, however. Just a couple of months later, the Boston Americans Baseball Club, today known as the Red Sox, hosted then won the very first World Series at Huntington Avenue. And another sports tradition was born in Boston. Thanks for listening. Come back next time for more Tales and Tidbits of New England as we dig out another story from Allen's Archives.